0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. and in truth. This is the word of God. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your your speaking over us and to us. And Lord, so this morning as we hear your voice, we would pray that we would not harden our hearts against you. Uh, Lord, we would ask this morning that your spirit would take your word and that he would impress upon our lives. Lord, we would we would pray and just offer up the freedom for the Holy Spirit this morning to direct our hearts, to convict our hearts, and to show us our need for you so that, Lord, as we see our need, we might come to our only remedy, our only Savior, Christ. So help us in that this morning, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Uh, Lord, help me be clear and tender and yet strong for us, Lord, in preaching your word. Strengthen me with your spirit and use this, Father, to change us, to make us more like Christ and to glorify you above all things. You are worthy And so we thank you for your word. We pray now you would help us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You can be seated. Let's suppose that you had the opportunity, that you actually (laughs) had the privilege of leading someone to become a follower of Jesus. Somebody who had not known the gospel, had not known the truth of what Christ had done before, who was not a Christian, and you were able to share the faith with them, to share the good news of Jesus, and they, they responded. They believed in Christ and they turned to him as their Lord and Savior. And, and now you have this glorious reality in front of you, this, this new Christian there, and they ask you the question, they turn to you and say, Okay, well, what's next? I've trusted Christ. Where do we start? Where do we go from here? What would you do? What would you say would be the next point? What would you say would actually be the starting point, that maybe first class that you would teach for that new Christian about their life and about following Jesus? Maybe some of you would start with the spiritual disciplines or the spiritual habits or practices. You would would teach that person, well, as a follower of Jesus, one of the ways that you would walk with Him is that you would commune with Him through reading His Word, being in the Bible daily, and and in prayer, and and expressing and answering God through your prayers, and and other disciplines that you would uh, share with them, like attending worship services with the gathered church, and giving, and, and you could just go on a list of different spiritual practices. Maybe that's where some of you would start, just to help them get into the rhythms of of spiritual life in the Lord. Uh, some of you, I I imagine, would actually take another approach and you'd say, well, you know, I I think that they would need to know like the essential doctrines, the essential truths of the Christian faith. And so your starting point for that person would be to teach them uh, theology. Now, maybe not the whole robust systematic theology, but but you'd want to help them get grounded in the essential doctrines of the Christian faith and help them understand uh, as best as able the Trinity and the the atonement and the Holy Spirit and, and those wonderful realities that are found in the Bible. Maybe that's where some of you would, start through robust instruction in the doctrines of the Christian faith. Some of you instead would, would look at that person and be like, be just amazed at their passion and zeal for the Lord that is brand new among them, and so you would want to capitalize on that passion and zeal. And so you would see that it would be very important for them to be able to immediately express and share what God has done in their heart with someone else, and so you would begin to teach them about how to share their faith. You would help instruct them in how to be an evangelist so that they could go to their family and coworkers and friends who see this passion and eagerness for the Lord, and they could tell them, here's what God's done in my life, and here's why you should follow Jesus as well. And so you would try and capitalize on the passion of their heart through uh, teaching them how to share their faith and to evangelize others. Now, I want to tell you that none of these things are bad. In fact, all of them are excellent uh, things and, and things that we must equip and educate and grow in as followers of Jesus. Every Christian should learn the spiritual habits and how to commune with God and and walk in a regular daily rhythm with Him. Every Christian should know the true tenets of the Christian faith and be able to articulate uh, what it is that we believe and why that is the case. And every one of us as followers of Jesus should be able to, with compassion and zeal and eagerness, be able to share our faith with those who are lost. Every single one of these things are important and essential. But I want to argue this morning that that's actually not where you should start in beginning with a new Christian. I think Jesus had a different school for us, a different place for us to start as followers of Jesus, and I believe that it's also one that many of us haven't gone to school on yet either. It's a place that maybe we are perhaps forgetting The first lesson that I think every follower of Jesus needs in how to live the Christian life, how to follow Jesus, is the lesson of family. Uh, Or to put it another way, it is the lesson of loving the family. And I'm not speaking about just loving your biological family, I'm speaking of the lesson of learning to love the Christian family, the church, to love one another. This is what Jesus has said is the distinguishing mark of a follower of His, a disciple of His. He said this in John chapter 13, that, that they will know, the world will know as they look on in the church, as they see the church, they will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, not by your articulation of doctrine, not by your practice of the spiritual habits, not by your zeal and evangelism. They will know that you are Christians by your love for one another. The world gets permission to look in on the church, and they can determine, they can evaluate the truthfulness of our claim that God is, or that Jesus has come from the Father, that God has sent the Son to die for us by observing our practical, lived-out love for each other, for the church. That's the distinguishing mark. And that, I would argue, must be the first class, if you will, the starting place for us in Christian discipleship, loving each other. We're talking about this forgotten virtue today, love. Hence this series, The Forgotten Virtue, learning to love again. And we've been studying in the book of First John, this letter that John has written as a pastor to his friends and his church that has undergone a pretty significant problem. The church was divided. There were false teachers in the church who were claiming and saying to be truly with God, to truly be saved. You must have this higher elevated knowledge. You must have this deeper doctrine and this truer experience. And if you, if you would join with us, if you would have that experience, you would be part of us. But since most of you aren't that smart and you're not that clever, you're not with us, and therefore God probably doesn't love you. And so they, they taught their heresy, they didn't act in love, and they divided the church. And now John is speaking to this wounded, hurting church, his brothers and sisters, and he's helping them ascertain and see, here's what it means to be in the light. Here's what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Here are the ways in which we walk that display that we are His. He's been writing this not to condemn them, but to assure them of what they already have. And that's a helpful note for us this morning to see that what John says here through the power of the Holy Spirit isn't to condemn us, but it's to help assess our own hearts so that we see the veracity, we see the truthfulness of what we have, we see the reality of what we have. So John has been sharing with his church some tests. He's been sharing with them, here's some ways that you know that you're in the Lord and that you know you're in Christ. One of them was the test of truth. Do they have the right truth? Another was the test of obedience. Are they walking in the light? Are they obeying the Word of God? And, And here this morning we see a third test. It's the test of love. You might say that John takes them to school and he takes them to the first fundamental course in Christian discipleship the course of love. And I would be so bold this morning to say this. If this is a course that you struggle in and fail in, it's a course that would help you and you need to think about, are you truly a follower of Jesus? Because this is where Jesus starts. The world will know you are my followers, you are my disciples by your love for one another. If we can't love each other, it breaks down our entire reality of what we truly say we believe. Now, the course here that John has for us is outlined in these verses in 11 through 18, and John starts with sharing the objective of the course. Here's the thing that he wants us to see and to get and just to kind of plant into our heart. It's the, the desired outcome for this course. It's in verse 11. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. He's so like, "This is this is Christian living 101. This is Christian living kindergarten. This is the very first, very very elemental, very essential course. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. How should we live that we should love one another? John out here just makes it very, very plain. He says, from the start, I've been telling you that love for one another is the ground of your lives as Christians. If you are going to practice anything, if you're going to live out any way of being a follower of Jesus, love for one another must be essential. That must be the starting point. And John tells him, I've been saying this, Jesus has been saying this, God has been saying this since day one, since the very, very beginning. Love for one another is the primary practice of Christianity. It's what it looks like. So we get the objective here, but we have to ask the question, well, okay, what does that mean? Because we're, we're investigative people. We want to understand, like, okay, what are the loopholes? What are the ins and outs? What does this really look like? And so John, from verse 11 through uh, verse 18, he kind of lays out, all right, let me show you the course and the outline here. I'm going to give you a negative example, and I'm going to give you a positive example. It's all one message that we should love one another, but you need to see how bad this goes so that you can see how good this is. And he gives us a way to walk. The problem with it is the problem of our hate. And John essentially starts the course by saying, hate takes. Hate takes. And that's how we live. That's what we believe. Recently, in fact, just in the last uh, several months, in October of last year, 15 university researchers from uh, prestigious universities, Stanford, Yale, all over the country, they got together and they wrote a, a paper for a science magazine. And that paper was to explain, this was a, a sociology uh Study. They sought to explain the rise of political sectarianism in in the United States today. You well, know, what's political sectarianism? Political sectarianism is the view or the tending, the growing tendency, as the article says, of one political group to view its opponents as morally repugnant. Just for one group to see the other group as completely devoid of any morality, any good, any any life, anything at all, and to see them as the enemies. Now, I bring this up not because it's political or to talk about it, but but to see that this has played out not just in politics, but in the world at large, even in the church. This political sectarianism, they boiled down to three ingredients. They said, here's the three ingredients that make this up. The first ingredient was the ingredient called moralization. What they would do is with the tendency of uh, of opposing views, it was the tendency to view the opposing party, to view the opposing partisans as as iniquitous. Those people are evil. And so in political discourse, what happened is instead of saying that is a bad idea or that doesn't work, it became they are evil. They're terrible, horrible. And they moralized things like policy and ideas. The second ingredient was the ingredient of aversion. This is the tendency to dislike and to distrust opposing partisans. So now anything that they say can't be good. Nothing that they do can be true. In fact, I don't even like them. I mean, they're just hideous people. And so, aversion speaks to backing away, holding arm's length, holding your nose and saying, they're disgusting. Moralization, aversion. And then a third ingredient was found in this political sectarianism. It's the ingredient of othering, what is othering? Othering is the tendency to view opposing partisans as essentially different or alien from oneself. Like, they're not even human. Like, they aren't even, like, valid people. Othering puts the arms out and puts them into a completely different camp. So They could be nothing like me. They would think nothing like me. They would be nothing like me. They're essentially obsolete, alien, different. You take these three ingredients and you sum them up, and that has really invaded the psyche of our nation. And We could boil it down to one word, it's hatred, right? It's hatred. Those people, their ideas, they're horrible, they're evil, I don't trust them, they can't even be me. That's hatred. This is not just in our nation, it's not just in our country today, it's in the church. It's in the church as well. And so, we have to ask the question, we have to identify this and ask the question, basically, primarily, how should a Christian family relate to each other? How should the church act? How should we live towards one another? Now, here's where John gives us the course in the negative. He's like, all right, let's let's get an example that's bad in front of us. Here's how we should not act. Look with me at verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain. Okay, he just brings out this biblical character from all the way at the beginning. That's why John can say you've heard this message from the beginning, because it begins at the beginning of the Bible as well. But he brings out the first child, Adam and Eve. They have the oldest son, their first son, Cain. And John says, we shouldn't be like Cain. Why? Well, John describes him in this way, and it's pretty strong language here. He says that he was of the evil one. Essentially, going back to verse ten, he was a child of the devil. He was of the evil one, and he murdered his brother. Sorry for all you kids that thought that you know Abel and Cain just from watching the video this morning, you know, just kind of lived happily ever after, even though they weren't really friends with each other anymore. No, Cain took his brother Abel out and slaughtered him. He murdered him. Was evil. Cain was of the evil one. We shouldn't be like him who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And we ask, well, why did he murder him? I mean, it's just horrible to do. Why would he kill his brother? Well, John comments on it this way. He says, because Cain's deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. This child of the devil, as it were, viewed his brother's deeds and he slaughtered him for that the story is is one that we know Cain and Abel recognize that they are to worship God to provide a sacrifice out of their livelihoods that they're to go to God in that way so Cain being the farmer he takes and the scripture says some of his produce to God and goes to worship God and he and he gets just some of the some of the fruit some of the vegetables some of the stuff that he's been working hard to find it's like kind of like maybe digging around the couch cushions and finding just some loose change and like that's what I'll bring to God. so that's what Cain has. He brings this offering of some of his produce to God. And yet God doesn't accept his offering. He doesn't receive it. Abel, on the other hand, the shepherd, he brings the first fruit, the firstborn of his flock. Abel shows up with the very best. He has the essential portions, the best portions, and he brings those to God and the offering is accepted. Cain's worship on one hand was half-hearted. It was perfunctory. Cain was just checking a box. Yeah, I showed up, to God and, showed up to God and worshiped him, and I gave him some stuff. Abel's worship, on the other hand, was wholehearted and sacrificial. It was devotion. Now, don't think for a moment that God was comparing the two offerings and going, okay, Abel's got some really good first fruit stuff, or the first and best of his flock, and Cain's just kind of got some, so I'm going to go with Abel. God wasn't choosing sides here. He was asking for their best. He was asking for their whole hearts. He was asking for all of their devotion. And Cain just showed up with some. I mean, he just kind of walked his way into what he thought God would accept. And what happened was Cain became angry. He was upset that God had not accepted his sacrifice, his offering. And what he did is he filled his heart with anger, and he took his anger out on his brother, and he went and murdered him. And this is why John can say his own deeds, Cain's deeds, were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Cain didn't relate to God as he should have, which is the definition of evil. So he compounded his evil deeds and committed first-degree murder. Now, that's Cain and Abel. And we look at that and we go, wow, that's, that's just a horrible, horrible mistake, a horrible thing. And then we go, well, what about? Like, this is where we like to play the game and kind of turn it around and go, okay, well, like, what about the world? What about them? What about out there? Don't they hate us? This is what John says in verse 13. He says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Like, there's hatred all over the place, and we as followers of Jesus, we experience it, we feel it we know that we're not loved in the world. And John says, don't be surprised by that. But sometimes, a lot of times, especially in America today, we are surprised by the world hating us. And what do we do when we realize the world hates us? Or what should we do? How should we respond? Well, John says, don't be surprised. It's going to be there. It's going to come. It's going to happen. But don't go to war against the world because they hate you. The world is going to hate Christians." Duh. Jesus says that a servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they will also hate you. It's not something we should be surprised by or try to go in war against. The history of civilization has been the world, the system of the world, the kingdom of the world hates the people of God. And we get into trouble as Christians when we try and make peace with the world in the ways of the world. In fact, we always get into trouble When we compromise the truth so that the world will like us, when we trade holiness for a seat at the table of power, we get in trouble. When we use the tools of this world like power and wealth to fight against the world, we become what we're not. We lose out. The world will hate you. And that's just something we have to accept and understand. The world will be opposed to it. Don't be surprised by it, but don't turn the table and say, well, since they're going to war against me, I'm going to go to war against them. Here's what John says. Here's how we are to know we are different. How are we to know that we are not children of the devil? Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The tangible display of our renewed lives, of our being born again is not our hatred towards everybody else, like the world, but the tangible display of our faith is our love for one another. We love the brothers. And he says, whoever does not love abides in death. How do you know you have been born again, that your heart is new? What's one way that it's displayed? You love other Christians. That's as simple as that. It's as plain as that. Christianity 101, Christian Living 101. Or the kindergarten class on Christianity, it's probably preschool really, is to love the family. And John here puts it in the starkest of terms. Get, get it here. He has no nuance, okay? We love nuance today. We want peculiarities and loopholes and just like defining out. He doesn't do that. He just lays it on the table. It's either that, yes or no. It's either in or out. It's yet, here it is. Everyone who, this is what he says in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And what John isn't saying here is that in some way you need to earn your salvation by loving other people. No, love is the result of being rescued by the grace of God. Love is the result of Jesus' death being applied to your life as you trust in Him. Love is the product of what the Holy Spirit does within you when you believe in Christ. But there's hate in our hearts. If we hate our brothers and sisters, what's it revealing about what's going on in our hearts? It's right for us to ask the question, have I truly believed Christ? Have I truly trusted Him? This is exactly consistent with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. It's not enough for us not to physically kill one another, but that murder is really just the expression of hatred that has come into final and greatest fruition. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Hate leads to murder. In fact, murder is the final demonstration of hatred. Murder is hatred in its fullest flower, but hatred starts in a much smaller place, and that's why he challenges so much about hating our brothers and sisters. I don't know any Christians that have murdered other Christians physically. That's a good thing, but I know a lot of Christians that have hated other Christians. And there is the problem that John begins to identify. The Holy Spirit wants to press in on this. Look at the progression of Cain's life. Okay, let's just think about Cain's story here. His deeds were evil, as the text says here. His deeds were evil. He was not accepted. He didn't worship the way the Lord had called him to. He wasn't relating to God rightly, and so he was evil. His brother's deeds, on the other hand, Abel's deeds, were righteous. He was accepted. So what does Cain do? Well, this is the way that hatred works. First of all, Cain gets angry. He's angry that he's not accepted. In fact, that's what God says to him. He says, Why are you so angry? What are you so mad about? I'm mad that I wasn't accepted, that you didn't take my offering. Well, duh, lunkhead, you didn't offer the way I called you to, but you're angry. Cain sees that. He's angry, he's not accepted, and he's fallen short. But anger isn't just stewing there, anger finds and has an object. This is how hatred is born. Anger finds a way to to express itself. It finds somebody to point itself at. Cain here's anger is pointed at his brother Abel. He, He sees Abel's righteous actions. He compares himself to Abel. He gets mad at Abel. Abel did what was right. And he points his anger right at him. Anger is never pointed inside. Yes, we can be angry at ourselves, but that abates itself. Anger, true anger, is always pointed away from us at someone else. It's always a weapon in our hands. So Cain is angry. His anger has an object, his brother, and anger always has to be resolved. Nobody can sit on anger forever. It's always got to be taken care of. Now, some of you have long fuses, and you can be uh, the pressure cooker kind of anger. You just kind of stuff your anger, and you put it down, and, and eventually you pop your top, and you blow up, or you find a way to release it. Some of us have much shorter fuses, and we're just quick to answer with our anger and fury. But anger always has to be released. It always must be resolved. Action has to be taken in our anger. And this is what hatred is. Hatred is anger that moves itself to get in action against something or someone that we perceive is wrong. Anger is or hatred is anger that moves itself to action against something we perceive as wrong. Now I want to be real clear here, hatred and like anger isn't always sinful. Hatred like anger isn't always evil. There are things that we should hate. In fact the scripture says the Lord hates iniquity. He hates unrighteousness. Is God a sinner? No, not at all. He righteously hates the things that are wrong, that should not be. And there are things that we should hate, such as the murder of unborn children. That's something we should hate, such such as injustice in our society, such as racism, such as poverty. Those are things that we should rightly justly hate. But here's the point that John is making. The Christian Christian, should never hate another Christian. Our anger should never move itself to action against another person, another believer that we perceive is wrong. We should never hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, but let's be honest, right? We do take action in our anger against other followers of Jesus, right? We get angry so we slander them and we speak badly about them that's hate we get angry and so we manipulate we lie we deceive and that's hate we get angry and we separate ourselves from them we distance ourselves we practice aversion and that's hate and we get angry we hope for their downfall. We, we cheer for their ruin. That's hate. And we get angry. and We internally and mentally stew on and believe the worst about them. We distance ourselves from them. We moralize them. And that's hate. Hate is working to kill what we're angry about. Hate is working to kill what we're angry about, and the Holy Spirit here in verse 15 points out that hatred pointed at a brother or sister in Christ is essentially murder, and it calls into question our walking with Jesus. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Jesus said, you have heard, you shall not murder, but I tell you, if you hate your brother or sister... Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is asking us the question, is there life in us? Have we believed the gospel? Because if we have, love should be pervading from our heart, not hate. There's no nuance in this. We need the stark truth in front of us to teach us what is right. Now, I know here at this point we go, okay, hatred, not good. But let's be, let's be honest. We like to play the lawyer, Right? We, we like to find the loophole. We like to find the way to get out of the trouble that we're in. And so we want to just kind of sidestep this one, right? Oh, me hating? No, I've never hated anybody in my life, right? Especially my brother. And, and we would ask the question like the lawyer that comes to Jesus, well, who is my brother? Who is my sister? What's the category here in which hate cannot abide? When John speaks of this brother, who is he talking about? Well, John here is just using the family language of the Bible, not biological, but spiritual family. And so to ask ourselves the question, who is our brother or sister here? We have to look at what the scripture says. Earlier in this chapter, John in verse 10 has talked, in chapter 3, verse 10, he's talked about two categories of people the children of God and the children of the devil. And he has said that the children of God are born of God, they've been born again. We ask, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, if we go to John chapter 1, John's gospel, there we see John very clearly tell us who has been born of God. But to all who did receive Him, meaning Christ, to all who did receive Christ, who believed in His name, so put their faith and trust in Him, believed in His name, He, God, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To become a child of God is to receive Jesus Christ. It's to see Him who came and lived the perfect life you didn't live, who died on the cross for your sins, and who was raised to life again. It's to believe and to receive Him, and you're born again as a child of God. You become a child of God through faith. So every human being who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior is a child of God. That's a huge circle. Your brother or your sister in Jesus is the entire scope of humanity that has been born again by God. They are children of God as they've trusted and believed in Jesus alone as their Lord and Savior. Now, let me get these two realities to meet up for us. Who is your brother or sister? Anyone who's trusted and believed in Jesus, do you hate them? Any individual? Let me just press in here a little bit in terms of our current cultural moment expose how hatred looks even in the church. Do you ignore the person who believes in Jesus and yet is of a different race than you are? Do you ignore them? Do you slander the person who believes in Jesus? Yet if you would identify yourself as a Republican here, you look at them and you notice that they voted Democrat, would you would you slander them? Do you believe the worst about the person who believes in Jesus? Yet if you're a Democrat, you know that they voted Republican? Do you separate yourself from the person who believes in Jesus and yet holds a different opinion of the non essentials of the Christian doctrine? Do you, in anger, go to action against other believers in Jesus? Friends, that's hatred, it's murder. And what does this scripture tell us about that? It reveals that our hearts haven't been changed. We need to ask the Spirit to reveal that among us. I know this has been kind of negative for us to evaluate and to see, and it's hard. This is the negative perspective on the course outline, but let's flip the coin, because John doesn't just leave us there, he takes us to the positive, to another direction. The second part of the course looks like this. If hate takes, if it takes life, if it takes reputation, if it takes friendship, if it takes community, if it takes unity should have nothing to do with it. You should not hate one another. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, we need to pick up the second part of the course, and that is to see that love serves. Love serves. If Cain is the negative example, who's the positive example? The answer is Christ. Christ is the example for us. Look with me at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. The demonstration of love is Jesus' In his totality, Jesus in all that he is, pure and simple. By this we know love. So if you need the template on love, if you need the the course description and the model and the student who got the A++ and got the 100 on this, it's Christ. By this we know love. Jesus is the one who shows us love. Jesus is love. And here's how he displayed his love to us. Here's how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. Do you see it? We see what Jesus has done for us, that he laid down his life for us, and this is how we know we are to love. Here's how we know what love looks like for us as we express it, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for every brother and sister who has trusted and placed their hope in Jesus. We ought to lay down our lives for them. This is the distinguishing mark of the Christian life. It's love, and we must just see that that love is not just hating something or someone. Love is a movement forward. Love has an action. Love is a verb, if you want to put it that way. Jesus' life, His love shows us that. He laid down His life for us. Again, no nuance, no gray area. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He laid down his life for us. And that's how we should love one another. We should lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters, for anyone and everyone who is born of God through faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Christian love is a positive giving of ourselves for the sake of others. It's laying down our lives, our preferences, our ambitions, our goods, our wants, our dreams for the sake of each other because that's what Jesus has done for us. This is the reality of the gospel, that Jesus saw us, not as friendly, cozy people that just needed a little pat on the back. He saw us as enemies, because that's what we were. He saw us as haters of him, because that's what we were. And he came for the haters. He came for you and I, who despised him. And what did we do? We murdered him. We put him on the cross. But he went there willingly, He went there in love for you and for me. And that's how we are to love, even to love one another. John makes this more practical. He he helps us get more flesh and blood on it, and he asks us a question in verse 17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods, so if you've got stuff, if you've got wealth, if you have the world's goods, and yet you see your brother or sister in need, and you close your heart against them, you just ask the rhetorical question here. How does God's love abide in you? If you close your heart towards your brother or sister when you see them in need and you can meet that need, where's love? It's not there. It's not in your heart. It's not something you're expressing. If you see the need and you close your heart, which is hatred, by the way, I mean, it's just right to raise the question. Have you truly been born again? The good news is that Christ saw our need. He, our elder brother, knew our poverty and condition, our despair. And he came and gave himself to meet that need and to rescue us. Jesus, our elder brother, he didn't murder us, but he loved us. And he was willing to be murdered for our sin. He didn't close his heart to us. Our slander, our lies, our hatred, our animosity, our violence was all aimed at him. And did he close his heart? He served. That's what love does. It gives itself. It serves. Friends, how often do we do this? How often do we close our hearts against our brothers and sisters? How often do we shut them off? We moralize them. We become aversive away from them. We other them. That's hatred. We close our hearts. This weekend is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and It's on this weekend that I specifically want to take the application of this text about our love for our brothers and sisters and apply it to the sin of racism that still persists in our country and persists in the church, in our church even today. How does the love of God exist in our hearts when we close our hearts to the needs of our brothers and sisters that are brown or black, their family members who suffer injustice and poverty? How does the love of God exist in our hearts? I know the excuses too. I know how we ask it because we say, well, if they, we turn it and we point it outward and we would say things like, well, if they just wouldn't resist or if they would just stay in school or if they would just clean up and get a job or if they would just have better biblical doctrine or if they wouldn't just come across so angry or if they just wouldn't. and and we defer them. I'm trying to point out here that we're often guilty of putting the responsibility on our brothers and sisters who are in need, who are hurting, by our our practical racism and saying, if they, instead of acting ourselves in love towards them. The Holy Spirit says, little children, this is verse 18, let us not love in word or talk. And that's what we do a lot of times, right? oh, I'm not a racist never had a racial thought in my mind. I I couldn't be that. But we if they them, and we don't love them in deed and in truth. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus didn't say, well, if they would just obey me, then I'd come for them. If they would just clean up and be holy. Jesus doesn't say, if they would just study the Bible more. Jesus didn't say, if they. He came for us. He loved us. He served us. He sacrificed Himself for us. He died for us. That's love. Love is action. Not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let me quote Dr. King this morning. He says, Jesus eloquently affirmed from the cross a higher law. He knew that the old eye-for-an-eye philosophy would leave everyone blind. He did not seek to overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. Although crucified by hate, he responded with aggressive love. What a magnificent lesson. Generations will rise and fall. Men will continue to worship the God of revenge and bow before the altar of retaliation. But ever and again, this noble lesson of Calvary will be a nagging reminder that only goodness can drive out evil. And only love can conquer hate. Here's the point. Basic Christian living is a course on loving the family, the whole family. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, who have trusted in him, that's who we are to love. So follow Christ, don't follow Cain. I mean, the examples are there. Don't be Cain, but be like Christ. Follow him. This truly is a tale of two loves. On one hand, it's a love for ourselves, isn't it? We love ourselves. We love this world. We love the kingdoms of this world. But we see a more powerful love, a deeper love, the love of God in Christ. And his love is unpacked in us. His love works itself out to us by our love for one another in the church. So Let me ask you in conclusion this morning, are there brothers or sisters in Christ that you hate, that your anger is working itself out in action against them? This morning, the good news is that you can repent of that. You can acknowledge your sin and your hatred before the Lord, and you can bring that to Him and be forgiven and accepted. Repent of your sin. Reconcile with your brother or sister. Don't hate them. Do you have brothers and sisters that you have closed your heart against? You don't want to serve. You don't want to bless. You don't think they earn it. You don't think they deserved it. You don't think that they are like you. Repent of your sin. Take that to Christ this morning. He died for that. Hear his forgiveness and his love for you and then go serve your brothers and sisters. Serve those who are in need. Don't close your heart Let's be people of action. Let's be people of love in deed and truth, not just word or talk. A couple ways that you can do that is by being a part of supporting the need and the way that we meet needs here at our church through our Benevolence Fund. It's just a, a, a way in which we find and see needs that are in our church body, physical needs, and we seek to alleviate those needs. Our team here hears those needs and they deploy the gifts that you give in order to meet those practical needs. You can give to that when you give online or through an offering envelope. Just write benevolent fund or deacon fund on that. It'll go right there to that ministry need. In your bulletin this morning, there's an insert honoring and reminding us of Martin Luther King Uh, Junior day tomorrow, I would encourage you to take that out. On the backside of it, there's some ways that you can get involved, that you can be a part of racial reconciliation through the church in our community today. You can scan that QR code where you'll find resources, you'll find organizations, you'll find people within the church that you can partner with. And so our deeds and our action, our love won't just be in word and talk, but it will be in action and truth. Take a look at that later today. And see where you can serve. Brothers and sisters, let me allow us to hear from the Holy Spirit one more time. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. May that be true of us. May our practice of Christianity 101 be a practice of love for the family through and through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we confess this morning, Lord, our our hatred. We confess that we despise our brothers and sisters. We confess that we have not lived in love. So, Lord, we repent of these things this morning. May your spirit convict, and as he has convicted us, Lord, may we bring those sins to you where we can find forgiveness because Christ has died for us. And then, God, give us the grace and the strength to reconcile, to restore, to love again. Give us the grace and strength not to close our hearts, but to serve as Christ has served. Help us to be a people of deep love, radical devotion to you, and love for all of our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We pray for your help in this by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.